what people I think really want is to connect in a deep way, um, surprise themselves, say something they haven't said before, um, get to know the people in their lives more. And um, it, that's, that isn't uh, a thing that we have um, a lot of tools for. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I talk with fascinating, talented, and inspiring guests who reflect on the adventures and challenges of aging and who are living their lives with vibrance and purpose. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist, writer, and fellow Zestful Ager. I want to invite you to my brand new free webinar, Zestful Aging. Here's how you do it. You can sign up at NicoleChristina.com. And as always, I appreciate your feedback. Last week, we spoke with comedian Regina Stoops. She talks about how many different ways she's had to come out. She's funny and resilient as hell. Next week, we speak with zestful ager Kathy Elkins, the owner of Webs, the largest yarn store in the world. Well, I have my Jack Russell Terrier Sparky right beside me and my coffee in my hand. So let's begin. Today, we're speaking with Michael Hebb, who's the founder of DeathOverDinner.org and the author of Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner, an invitation and guide to life's most important conversation. He's also the founder of Convivium, which is a creative agency that specializes in the ability to shift culture through the use of thoughtful food and discourse-based gatherings. Convivium has worked closely with thought cultural leaders and many foundations and institutions, including the World Economic Forum, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Ted, Apple, United Nations Foundation, and the Nature Conservancy. Welcome to the show, Michael. It's great to be here. Thanks. Why don't we start about uh, just really in the beginning? Uh, tell mm-hmm. us how you got interested in talking about death. I'm sure that's a question you get asked a lot. <laughs> yeah, I've become the default death guy for one. Uh, um, uh-huh. You know, you know how sometimes people mention that they like a certain bird um, or <laughs> a certain uh, yes. type turtles. of turtles. Yeah, turtles, <laughs> and and then uh, the gifts they get for the next thirty years or turtles or, or right. you know, um, seagulls. And so um, I've become uh, this you know, default death guy. And so everybody, even though I actually set out to spark conversations about death, I didn't realize that, that it meant that I was going to be talking about death all of the time, which is, wow. is both wonderful and, um, and fascinating. But um, the way it began really had nothing to do with death. Um, the this project started um, really when I, I was in college. I studied the classics um, and started to learn at, an, uh, at a pretty early age about the importance of the dinner table and the importance of conversation um, about difficult topics and expansive topics. And um, if we look at the classical period in Athens, um, you know. Of course, we think of Socrates and Plato, um, and we might think about the fact that that's how we um, 
were gifted, or this is where the idea of democracy came from. Um, it's also the, um, the time and place where the idea of uh, the justice system um, and courts came from. And that all happened, these incredible um, uh, formative ideas in the, you know, in the history of humankind, um, in great part were due to the symposiums, the dinner parties of, of Athens. Um, and these were, you know, almost nightly affairs in Athens where the leaders and the stakeholders of that culture were together eating and drinking and, and having difficult conversations about love and death. And I mean, uh, Plato's symposium um, is Socrates' dinner conversation about love. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, um, the interest started there as far as um, the dinner table and difficult conversations and seeing how they have the potential to shape culture. Um, and then the reality is we've forgotten how to eat together in large part. Um, I, my, my next move was into architecture. Um, and I started to really think about what is the best way to create human experience um, and realize that I didn't need to build anything at all. Um, that architecture, the way that we tend to think about it, is very expensive um, and resource intensive. Um, you get a bunch of money and you build a building or a house. Um, and I realized that the table is actually the first architecture um, in many ways. This is where we made a decision to build a space um, a third space other than where we're um, eating and where, or other than where we're sleeping. Um, and, um, and, and that throughout time, the, this dinner table, not just in um, Athens, had, has been so formative and, and then we'd forgotten how to, how to use it really. 20% um, of, uh, of meals are eaten um, in the car in America right now. Mm. <laughs> Not surprised to hear it, but boy, when you hear those percentages, it just really brings it home. Yeah, we've really, um, we've and lost something. We're not something. cooking. We're not cooking. Um, and when we are eating, um, it's often, it, when it is together, it's often in a restaurant, which is fine, but it's not um, an ideal envir environment for, you know, deep conversation and connection. Restaurants are loud, they're distracting, they're performative. Um, that 20%, that shocking 20% statistic doesn't include the number of meals that are eaten on couches or in bed watching Netflix, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and this isn't, it's not an indictment. It's really just because I love, um, you know, getting my girls together in bed to have a meal and watch Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with it, but you don't want to do it all the time. Yeah. Um, and even if we are at the table, of course, especially if we have teenagers, we're fighting with them to get off of their devices. Yeah. And we're also, um, we also will gather often with our close friends or our family um, and have a real yearning for a deep conversation, but uh, sometimes we don't know how to get there. Um, we end up talking about um, essentially just reporting on our lives or the drama at work or the political situation, um, which has a certain level of depth uh, if, if, if you go there. But what people, I think, really want is to connect in a deep way, um, surprise themselves, say something they haven't said before, um, get to know the people in their lives more. And 
um, it, that's, that isn't uh, a thing that we have um, a lot of tools for um, in, in our culture. So long, long story short, um, I realized that I wanted to spend, uh, at a very young age, at about 22, I realized that I was going to spend the rest of my life reinvigorating um, the dinner table. <laughs> mm -hmm. What was the dinner table like when you were growing up? It was a combination of things. Um, it was quite active early in my life. My father cooked, my mother cooked, um, and we gathered, you know, I would say nightly. Um, and then my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's when I was in second grade. Mm. And this was, um, you know, over 30 years ago now, so 35 years ago now, and Alzheimer's wasn't very well understood. Um, and the, the fact that um, he was losing his, um, you know, his, his, not his conscience, but his, his clarity um, and suffering such a, a deeply um, affecting um, disease, the family, with the, without the family really understanding it, it had the impact of just tearing our family apart. Um, and the, the other thing that became really, I became even more aware of when I started Death Over Dinner and one of the main inspirations for it um, is the fact that if my family had had the tools, if my mother had had the tools to talk to my brother and I about the fact that my father was going to die um, and that the time that we had left with him was precious and that he was going to be clear some days and some days it would be um, more difficult to communicate with him. Um, but if we had open conversations about what was going on, um, we would have all spent more time with him. And as a result, we didn't have those conversations and we didn't spend very much time with my father. He was institutionalized. And there was a kind of shamefulness cast around the whole thing. Um, and it's really one of my only regrets in life. And so fast forward many years and I have been, um, you know, on my path of, of reinvigorating the dinner table. Um, and as you mentioned, there's a lot of um, organizations that I've worked with, um, with the Obamas and the Clintons and um, leaders and African presidents and the UN and um, really extraordinary opportunities to gather um, some of the most influential people on the planet and to challenge them. Um, and so for many years, I um, had a, this organization Convivium where I was the guy that was coming in to ask um, the leaders hard questions and get them to talk about difficult topics like genocide and trauma and addiction and wealth disparity um, over the dinner table, um, which was amazing. And, but I realized that I could only impact um, a very finite number of people, um, dinner table by dinner table, and I really wanted um, a project and a platform that could reach millions. And so I started looking for a topic, and um, yeah. and it it our our, our pilot because <laughs> I didn't know if it would be a thing that reached two hundred people or two thousand people or two million people um, was death over dinner and. Mm -hmm. Um, the reason why, you know, there's many reasons why I, I chose that as the first topic. One is the personal, um, the way that it impacted me personally, um, not having this conversation. And secondly was when I was educated about how badly um, we die, um, how we've over-medicalized the process, and now 
75% of people want to die at home and only 25% of us do. Um, and so when I realized that half of us aren't getting what we want at the end of life and that conversations could actually impact that open conversation, mm -hmm. um, then it became very clear that this work around the dinner table um, and deep, hard conversations could really find a home in a conversation about death. This is a hard question to answer, and I'm sure there are many, many pieces to it, but I'm curious why it's so difficult to talk about death. Yeah, so the I, I, I would give you, like, there's a couple ways to view this, because obviously I think about it a lot. Mm -hmm. On one hand, I actually don't think it is. Um, I think that people do want to talk about death. Um, I think that they have um, a lot to say and a lot that they want to communicate about loss, about fear, about what they want for the rest of their lives. Um, the thing is we don't often ask people. Um, the thing is we haven't created spaces, permission, inspiration, opportunity um, to have these conversations. Um, they're, they're not an enjoyable conversation to have in a lawyer's office or in an ICU. In the hospital, right. Right. Yeah, no one wants to talk about death with their oncologist, right? That's, um, if you're in that situation, um, that you're having to deal with more than any human wants to deal with. Um, and so in this conversation about death, because we have um, reduced it to only crisis situations, um, has gotten this bad rap as a conversation that we don't want to have and don't know how to have. Um, and we've also hidden away the fact that we die. Um, we um, aren't at the bedside as often of the people that we love as they die. They're often surrounded by a care team um, and wires and, you know, <laughs> beeps and, you know, within a, mm -hmm. within a care suite um, as we have really focused on how to defeat death and not how to um, really think about it as a community act, not a medical act. Mm -hmm. Do you see it differently um, as you travel and you see how different cultures talk about death and deal with death? Have you noticed differences? Yeah, I mean, there are places that have um, um, easier routes or more established um, almost highways into this conversation, right? We've got a few dusty country roads into this conversation um, from a cultural level that aren't, that aren't used very often. There are places um, like Mexico and India um, who have much more, and in Sulawesi and Indonesia, um, who have much more established ways and, um, of communicating about and rituals around death. But that doesn't mean that we haven't seen a globalization around the medicalization of death. Mm -hmm. So we've started to um, die in, um, in, in a very medical way, in a very medical setting mm -hmm. in all of these countries. Um, and the other thing is these rituals are old. Um, Day of the Dead is old. Um, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the traditional Hindu burial. Um, and cremation is an old ritual, um, and they deal with um, the body and the afterlife and grief. Um, the way that we die has changed drastically. We die 
we know we're going to die now. We die primarily announced deaths instead of accidental um, or sudden deaths. And so that even these cultures that have dealt with deaths so well for so long, um, there's, a, there's a need for um, a, a vast global rethinking about how we have this conversation and how we deal with the fact that we now know so much about ourselves. <laughs> um, and we know so much about the trajectory of our lives, thanks to science. Um, we have a kind of existential um, evolution to do around how to um, have these conversations and, and, and really take advantage of the time that we do have here. What are your thoughts about um, the increase in consumerism, tech, and what one writer calls casino values in, in the United States? Do you see that the more we're sort of focused on, um, I don't know, uh, our phones, our likes, our, our Instagram, all of this, do you see that as a way of separating from some of these larger, deeper, and more um, difficult conversations? Yeah, and you know, and I'm, I, I also, again, I don't have an indictment of those technologies. I just think that they've been designed around um, the lowest hanging fruit. Mm. Um, they're, they're, how do we engage people and increase engagement? Um, it's like they're the, um, the, sh the sugar, the um, junk food mm -hmm. um, is, the majority of our technology has been designed like junk food. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's just a tool. Um, it is, the question is whether we can elevate and evolve our technology so it actually has the nutrients that we need. Um, now, a conversation about death has always been considered really good medicine. Um, every, you know, it's why it's baked into religions. It's why it's baked into every philosophical tradition and wisdom tradition is for us to confront the fact that we are mortal, um, that our time here is limited, mm -hmm. and that our, our lives have some consequence and our decisions have consequence. Um, mm -hmm. How do we want to live these lives? Now, if we're, a lot of people will you know, say, oh, it's morbid, and it's actually, no, it's actually very enlivening to mm -hmm. think about the fact that you have a limited time. Um, mm -hmm. If it's done carefully and thoughtfully, um, and so that's kind of, the, the missing piece um, is not that people don't want to have these conversations, it's that we need to design better and better ways um, and invitations for people to have these conversations. Because there's a yearning for meaning. Um, what we see um, across our culture, like the number one prescribed um, medications at this point, right, are painkillers and antidepressants. Mm -hmm. right? For me, that... You know, people are in pain, yeah. um, and there's a there's a deficit, there's a lack of meaning mm -hmm. in our lives, and so the the thing that happens to give our lives most meaning and definition, it, it, you know, ironically, <laughs> is 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 the fact that we're not going to be here forever is death. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, it's interesting. I was filling out the five wishes, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. And at first I was a little bit apprehensive and thought, oh, I really have to do this. But it was a really remarkable feeling afterwards. There was a lightness and there was this 
it's very hard to put into words, but really coming to terms, the practical questions, who do you want to be there? What would you like to have served? Where's this going to be? What music? Where are your dogs going to be? You know, like really getting into the nitty gritty. It was it was very liberating in in the oddest way. Yeah, it, it, and that's the. I, I think that we need to really work on the um, on the communication or the like the PR strategy around <laughs> death, <laughs> because what you're talking about um, is is the actual experience of people having these conversations. Um, the, the reason why everybody's not having them is because the, um, the, the communication around them has been so poor. But there was a study done, I think it was University of Iowa, um, that thinking about our mortality and thinking about death um, not only makes us funnier, um, but it, <laughs> it increases our own sense of humor and we laugh more. Um, oh, who would have thought that? It's it's very funny because I do a lot of hiking with my dogs in this big, beautiful cemetery um, near where I live. And my some of my friends tease me, you know, how morbid it is. It is, there are hawks in there. There's moss everywhere. It is peaceful and beautiful and still. And But there is this resistance of, oh, it's ghoulish or, oh, you're weird. Although there, I've heard that there have been meditation groups going in and saying we might as well face this let's meditate in the cemetery because this is the reality of life yeah I mean that's a ancient Buddhist practice of meditating in the charnel ground um, meditating in the um, in, in burial grounds and cemeteries um, there is well, there's a couple things that come to mind one is the very nature of the word taboo, right, which we think is something that's forbidden, um, something that's off limits, and certainly people say death is the is you know the last taboo or the conversation or is a great cultural taboo. The reality is that word taboo comes from the um, Polynesian word, um, Eastern Islanders word um, tapu, T A P U, um, which means a sacred or holy place, and. That the idea is that it's not off limits. It's that it's the most important of places, but you need to be prepared to go in there. You ah. need to go in in a certain way. Thoughtfully. Yeah, thoughtfully and mindfully. Um, there's also been work done um, recently um, by Dr. Dr. Jordana Jacobs, who's um, a clinical psychologist in New York, and she studied um, the relationship between intimacy and our capacity to love, um, passion in our relationships, and, um, and meditating on death um, to see how it impacts um, our long-term relationships and found that there's, a, there's an increase in intimacy and the work that she's doing is looking towards what are the different ways that it increases our capacity to love, um, focusing not on the terror, you know, um, I'm so afraid and fear of death creates my neuroses, but what if we turn towards it and say, okay, it's going to happen um, in a much more Buddhist fashion, um, accept um, and look at. And to find that um, the upside is laughter, sense of humor, um, more intimacy, potentially more passion. We'll see that the, the uh, studies are still um, coming in, but <laughs> it's, it's not this, um, this, terrifying, um, this terrifying place. Now, it's I don't mean to be, um, you know, um, 
saying it's a, a easy, um, gleefully joyful mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's definitely um, pain and difficulty and things um, and, and you know grief and unprocessed emotions in this realm. Um, if we have the belief that our our greater freedom um, in this life comes from getting in and doing the work around this harder stuff, the shadow work, and getting into the, the things that we repress or the things that we avoid, if we believe that as a first principle, which a lot of people do, um, then, then death is a place to, um, and the fact that you're mortal is a place to um, point your boat. I mean, I found it really funny that, um, and funny is not really the right word, but surprising and not surprising, that recently I was asked to teach a workshop at Kripalu. Mm-hmm. Um, we have several guests from Kripalu on the podcast. Yeah, I'm not mm-hmm. surprised. It's one of you know the pre- preeminent uh, spiritual teaching mm-hmm. <laughs> meccas in the United States, if not world. And when they asked me, they had done an inventory and realized that they had never done a workshop on death. Which... Wow is pretty extraordinary when you think about it, mm. that even a culture that of, of spiritual growth mm-hmm. um, represented by a place like Kripalu, um, you would think that, um, the, that that shadow work would be done, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that, that spiritual growth. And so we're, yeah. we've left a lot of money on the table is the way I see it. Like, if we're feeling pretty good, well, if, you know, if we do this work around end of life, we have incredible potential to feel much better. <laughs> can you tell our audience where, can you give a little guidance on where to start? Because my sense is the audience is now saying, yes, I know I have to do this. I'm not exactly sure. sure. Uh, can you give a little bit of a uh, an introduction and how one might even start thinking about this over perhaps if people celebrate Easter or the next holiday or gathering, yeah. where do we start? Yeah, absolutely. And so there are a lot of places to start. I'll, I can speak, um, you know, at length about death over dinner and that model and I will, but I want to emphasize that there are some extraordinary organizations that are breaking this um, conversation open, um, like the five wishes that you mentioned and the mm-hmm. conversation project. Yes, Ellen Goodman. She's uh-huh. also on the podcast. Okay, great. Yeah, Ellen and I have partnered on many projects. Um, I was going to ask you about her. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, we've done many things. We even created a cookbook together called The Endless really? Table. Um, so, and there's an app called We Croak. Um, which will remind you five times a day that you're going to die in different uh, poetic ways. Um, so there's plenty of there's plenty of opportunities. There's death cafes, which are distinct from death over dinner um, events. And the way that death over dinner works is, for one, it's free and available to anybody, the resources um, and the website. Um, and the um, any, anyone can go and start planning a hypothetical dinner or a real dinner. Um, it'll be up to you whether you invite guests, but it's fun to go through the process. And it'll ask you a few questions on the website, like who's coming to dinner and why it is you want to have this um, conversation. And that, when you select your intention, that really creates the script for your whole evening. So that um, short of putting the food on the table 
everything else around this conversation is taken care of in the script. So there's no extra thinking that you have to do. You hold the script and you can read from it and ask the questions um, to your guests and answer them. And so it's, we made it as simple um, and as engaging as a board game. Um, and, like and a it, Seder. Yeah, it's like a Seder, but um, you don't have to wait an hour before you eat. <laughs> And it doesn't last for five hours, probably. Yeah, and it depends on whether you want it to be kosher or not. Um, so, but there's often wine at both, and um, so the uh, and then you know the the dinner wraps up, and it, usually they'll take an um, hour and a half. Some people spend you know three four hours at the table, and the, here's the thing: as you mentioned, the holidays. One of the golden rules of death over dinner, and, I, and actually I would say um, this work in general is to not surprise people. Um, okay. the, some people will say, hey, it's Easter, um, it's Thanksgiving, uh, um, I'm going to have a death dinner, and I would tell them that if you have a family that is willing to have a death dinner over Thanksgiving, whether you let them know about it or not, you probably don't need to see a therapist. Um, your family's probably so well adjusted. <laughs> um, you probably have a very happy life already. Um, but the, you know, the, the reality is um, give people an opportunity to self-select into this conversation. Um, and some people in your life won't like the idea of coming to your house um, or to a, a quiet restaurant um, or a picnic. Um, you can choose your venue and talking about death. Um, the nice thing is we've created a global movement around it. And so you can say, hey, over a million people have sat down and had these dinners, which is true. Um, and, and, it gives, and you can send New York Times and USA Today articles and say, see, it's really a thing. Um, <laughs> and they're fun. Um, and so that's one option. The other thing I would say is a lot of people who are ready to have this conversation feel like the people um, that are closest to them aren't ready or aren't as ready. Um, my parents don't want to talk about it. My spouse doesn't want to talk about it. They keep putting off, um, you know, creating our wills or our healthcare proxies, advanced care directives, or just in general talking about it. They hate this topic. And what I would say to you, if that's something that you've experienced, is that there's a real shift that can happen for you. Um, the people in your life that you think aren't willing to have this conversation are having this conversation. They are thinking about it in their own head. There's mm -hmm. no one who's an adult human being mm -hmm. who's fully deluded about the fact that they're not going to be here forever. Um, and there's not an adult human being who doesn't think about grief and loss um, and how it impacts them. Now, they're not potentially they're not sharing that conversation with you, right? And so the game that I like to play is not, you know, pointing the finger and say, why won't you talk about this? It's what can I do to create a safe enough place, um, an open enough environment or an opportunity where all of the people in my life feel comfortable telling me the things they're already thinking in their head. Thank you, Michael, for this fascinating and very important conversation. If you'd like to learn more about how to speak with your loved ones about death, head over to deathoverdinner.org.
Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. Next week, we speak with Zestful Ager Kathy Elkins, the owner of Webbs, the largest yarn store in the world. Going to her massive store in Northampton, Massachusetts is an homage for many hardcore knitters. Find out what it's like to hear first-time customers shriek with delight, and I was one of them, when they enter the store. And please consider becoming a patron of the show. You will get access to exclusive bonuses, and you will be part of the Zestful Aging community. Keep us going strong. Go to patreon.com slash Zestful Aging. See you next time for another episode of Zestful Aging.